that evolution is a lie. I thought we'd start off on a real soft topic, you know, with not a lot of debate. You know, there's no, no confusion. You know, just, no. The reason I know that evolution is a lie is because of the English language. If we were a truly evolving species, if we were changing, becoming better and better, I believe that we would have fixed some of the ridiculous parts of the English language by now. That's how I know we haven't really evolved as a species, because of our language. Sure, you know, we're, we're technologically evolving, we're growing and advancing technologically as a society, but studies have shown that all of our advances in technology have not made us smarter as humans. In fact, our IQ seems to be dropping as a species as a result of the technology because we're becoming more dependent on the technology and not getting smarter because of the, tech, the technology. So. I don't think we need to look any further than the English language to be able to see that uh, evolution isn't real. And here are some of my examples. For instance, silent letters. So why in the name of Shakespeare do we still have silent letters? Specifically, Shakespeare has silent letters in it, right? So like pneumonia, why do you have to have the silent P at the beginning of the word pneumonia. When you're a kid and someone's talking about pneumonia, somebody you know has pneumonia, did you ever think that it had a P at the beginning of it? No, because it's illogical. There's no reason to have it. I mean, if you spell it out, it spells kind of like this, N-U-M-O-N-Y-U-H, pneumonia. So that's how we should spell pneumonia, in my opinion, I think. Or the word aisle. How do you spell the word aisle? A-I-S-L-E, right? Why not I-L? Or why not E-Y-E-L-L-E? Right, because it still says aisle, aisle, if that's like, why can't we just, uh, uh, you know, evolve a little bit of a species? Or the one that's, you know, th that's really, really confusing is Q. Like the Q? Like your Netflix queue? How do you spell your queue, like your Netflix queue? Q-U-E-U-E. That's the actual way you spell it, Q-U-E-U-E. Why not just Q? One letter, like, and it's pronounced K-Y-O-O-E-E-Y-O-O-E-E. -E 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 -E. So like, why do, we, why do we have to, like that's how you would pronounce it if you pronounced it like you spelled it. Q-U-E-U-E, -U -E -U -E. that's how you would say the word Q-U-E-U-E. -U -E. And then we have, we, have, we have vowels that make different sounds. And the vowels can make different sounds in the same word. In fact, one vowel can make three different sounds in the same word. Eleven, E-L-E-V-E-N. It's so the same vowel, e-le-ven. It's ridiculous. Don't understand it. That's why, I don't, that's why I don't believe in evolution, because we haven't fixed this problem by now. 
And you've heard probably people who speak other languages have a hard time learning to speak English because of some of these ridiculous things. And our syntax is different than how other languages put together sentences. And if you read books, I have a hard time reading books from other languages that have been translated into English because of the syntax and it's all wrong. You know, if the rest of the world would just adapt to our better way of doing things, it would all work out. But you know you've encountered someone who speaks English as a second language and they have a hard time with speaking English because it doesn't make sense. And when you, when you learn English as a second language, you oftentimes start by sitting in a class and learning how to speak it, but then you don't just sit there and, and listen to someone teach you about it. You have to start speaking it, right? And then you have to start reading it, and then you have to start writing it and you have to start putting it into practice so you can work on the pronunciation and the spelling of it. And oftentimes what will happen is that students who really excel at learning English as a second language will then become teachers and they will teach others how to speak English that speak their first language. In other words, it takes a lot of work, right? takes a lot of work to learn how to speak English. And I kind of think that maybe, maybe that was the point. Maybe when the English were developing English, they did it to be difficult on purpose because we all know the English are kind of jerks, right? They're just not really nice people. And so, so maybe, maybe when they developed English, they were just trying to stick it to the French. So like, you're gonna, you're gonna speak French and then try to learn our language and it's not gonna make any sense to you. Like, okay, so let's create a language that's really impossible to speak. And then they put together a school where they're trying to teach the French how to speak English, but they only then, because they're kind of jerks, they only teach them one definition and one pronunciation of each word. And then at the end of the class, they give them the final exam and it might go something like this. Define the word spoke. The French man would say, uh, this is the past tense of the word speak, which means to talk. Englishman, ooh, sorry, wrong. Spoke is a part of the wheel. Define the word bark. Frenchman, the outer part of a tree. The Englishman, <laughs> I'm wrong again. That's the sound a dog makes. Use the word W-I-N-D in a sentence. Frenchman, every night I wind my watch. Englishman, what exactly do you hope to accomplish by blowing wind into your watch? Do you think you can travel in time? Tell me the difference between there, there, and there. The Frenchman laughs. <laughs> that is a good one. They're all the same word. You're just trying to trick me. No, listen closely, Voltaire. There, there, and there. Okay, next question. Well, this isn't going so well. Let me try, uh, let's try, I'll spell a few words for you to pronounce, and then you pronounce the words. So I, let's pronounce for me this word, W-O-M-B. Womb, okay, good job. Okay, now pronounce for me the word T-O-M-B. Tomb, good job, French man. Now pronounce for me the word B-O-M-B. Boom. 
It's bomb. Boom is the sound a bomb makes. You French people are such idiots. You see, I, I, think, I think that's probably a lot of the motivation behind the English language, is just to make it difficult for the rest of the world. And I think we're actually continuing this heritage as, as English speakers because the English language is actually kind of evolving, and it's evolving right now as we speak. As we are learning to speak English, it's changing in the present tense. There are people literally changing the English language at the moment. For instance, there's something called verbing, where you take proper names and turn them into verbs. And this is becoming a, a way we use nouns now. For instance, instead of saying, I looked it up on Google, we say, I Googled it. So we're verbing, right? So you're trending, you're doing good, which is also verbing, because a trend is a noun. And we, when something is trending, then we're verbing it. I, instead of saying, I took an Uber home, we would say, I Ubered, right? Or I Ubered home. And it's much more efficient. So the language is evol evolving, right? It takes fewer words. In fact, text speak is incredibly efficient, right? Instead of saying, I love you, you can just type one, four, three, which is great news for all the men in the room. You can just say one, four, three. Instead of saying anywhere, anytime, any place, you can just say a three. Instead of spelling out the word deviate, D-E-V-I-A-T-E, -E, you can just say D-V and then the number eight. Same thing for the word mate and great. Much more efficient. Now we are starting to make progress in the English language. Cutie, instead of spelling it C-U-T-I-E, you can just Q-T. And now we can actually start to summarize entire sentences down to four letters. I-M-H-O means what? In my humble opinion. Now, now we're really starting to make advances. N-O-Y-B, what does that one mean? None of your business. S-O-M-Y, sick of me yet? No comment. And see, you know, we've kind of we've given millennials a lot of grief for being lazy, arrogant, entitled, and easily offended snowflakes. But maybe, maybe they are the generation we needed to come along to finally start to make some advances in the English language, right? Maybe, maybe their laziness and arrogance are exactly what we needed to advance the cause of the English to create a language that can only be understood by people who grew up speaking English and we can stick it to the rest of the world because they don't understand how we speak. But I think you would all at least agree with me on this. The only way to really learn English is to have a good teacher, to speak it and be corrected when you get it wrong, Right? That's part of growing up. That's what we do when we're growing up. When you say words incorrectly, the adults in your life are supposed to correct them for you unless you have parents like mine or your parents like we are when your kids say something and you think it's cute. And so you let them go on saying it incorrectly just because you think it's cute. Like I grew up saying instead of put, P-U-T, I would say pert, P-U-R-T. And my parents just let me continue saying that all the way into elementary school, riding the bus when I said it with other kids around who are much smarter than I 
and felt the need to correct me. Pert? What do you mean, pert? So you need a good teacher. You have to be corrected when you get it wrong. If you want to learn the new speak, you need to have a millennial who's your teacher to be able to teach you these examples. For instance, got a picture I want to show you. The first one is when a millennial is teaching, you know, a parent about things like using hashtags. So do you have that one? Yeah, I'm learning how to hashtag. That's great, mom. Hashtag conversation with son. Mm-hmm. Mom. What does I-D-K-L-Y-N-T-T-Y-L mean? I don't know. Love you. Talk to you later. Okay. I'll ask your sister. And then this one. Uh, your great aunt just passed away, LOL. Why is that funny? It's not funny, David. This is not my mom, by the way. What do you mean? Mom, LOL means laughing out loud. Oh my goodness, I sent that to everyone. I thought it meant lots of love. I have to call everyone back. So, you know, so part of the process is having a teacher and then having someone correct you when you get it wrong. And then eventually you can become the teacher and teach it to someone else and become an expert of the English language. But this morning we're talking exactly about that, about being a teacher, about the process of becoming a disciple. And we're in the last week of our series on becoming like Christ. And the last week is going to deal with making disciples. And I know that there's a lot of probably tension in the room when we start talking about making disciples and how everyone has the responsibility of making disciples. This isn't just something that pastors of the church do or, or the leadership of the church is supposed to do, but that everyone who's a Christ follower is supposed to make disciples. We're supposed to go through this process where we are teaching someone and training them up and correcting them when they get it wrong and doing all of this process like we have experienced our whole lives with learning how to speak English, we also need to do with following Christ. So our big idea, I'm going to hopefully make some sense of this this morning. Our big idea for this morning is this. Making disciples isn't just something I do to help others grow. I do it to help myself become more like Christ. Making disciples isn't just something I do to help others grow. I do it to help myself become more like Christ. We'll explain that a little bit more. So again, this is the very end of our series. We've covered a lot of territory here, and now this is just kind of the last, the last capstone where we're tying all of these pieces together that we've kind of been on this journey becoming like Christ. And if we really want to become like Christ, this is a critical step. Our, our identity statement is Everyone got it? Making disciples isn't just something I do to help others grow. I do it to help myself become more like Christ. Okay, our weekly identity statement is this. I become more like Christ when I help others become more like Christ. This series has been 
like Christ, becoming like Christ. If we want to be like Christ, this is a very, very important part. A key, crucial component of becoming like Christ is helping others become like Christ. And we, ironically, become more like Christ in the process of helping others become more like Christ. And I'll explain that as we go through this morning. But before we continue on, let's all stand for a second and read out loud our memory verse for this series. Did such a good job last week reading it with enthusiasm and gusto and excitement and passion. See how we do this week. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Chapter 6, verse 43 through 45. Good job. Not as enthusiastic. We'll blame it on the weather. All right, so I become more like Christ when I help others become more like Christ. Matthew chapter 28 is our key verse for this week. One of our, we only have three key scriptures for this week that uh, we're going to pay special attention to. Some more will come up in the week ahead as we do the devotionals, but for now we'll just focus here. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is Jesus speaking. We're very familiar with this, or if you've been around church, you've probably heard this several times. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Therefore, go. I've, I've told before, but that phrase, therefore, go, can also be translated as you go. As you go, so therefore, go, or as you are going, do this. Make disciples. And a disciple, we have said, is an apprentice of Jesus. It's someone who apprentices under Jesus to become like Jesus, just like we have in the trades today with plumbers and electricians, they apprentice under somebody until they can become an electrician or a plumber themselves. So go, therefore, as you are going, make apprentices of Jesus. And then this phrase, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, is giving them a new identity. And so they're buried with Christ through baptism, raised to new life in Christ. As we are raised to new life in Christ, we are also receiving a new identity in Christ as his child, as his son, a son or a daughter of the king, a son or daughter of God himself. And so now we have this identity. We put to death our old identity, our Adam identity, and God is bringing to life our Christ identity in us. So as you go, make apprentices, giving them their new identity as a Christ follower, and then this phrase, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. 
And we do this all with the presence and help and support and power of Jesus himself, who is with us to the very end of the age. Now, I want to argue this morning, argue might not be the right word, I want to, I want to just make my case that you are not like Christ until you're making disciples. I know that's maybe a strong way to put it. But I think I can make the case, and I think actually when you understand some of the thought behind it, it actually starts to help us along the way when we know how it works. So you're not like Christ until you're making disciples, until you're teaching others how to obey Christ's commands. So if you really want to be like Christ, and if our our goal is reading through the Gospels and seeing what Jesus was and how he lived his life and what he did— then we have to pay special attention to the fact that he spent 90% of his time with the disciples. He spent 90% of his time teaching the disciples that were around him how to be like him. And so if we really want to be like Christ, and Jesus spent 90% of his time making disciples, then it, I think, follows that we need to make disciples if we want to be like Christ. But we've come through 13 weeks of the series, by the way. This is our 14th Sunday in this series. This is our 90, what, 91st day, I think. So this is our last week. Got a few bonus days. Aren't you excited? We're not stopping at 90. We're going to carry on for another week. I mean, this is good. Good. We're going to keep, keep going on. But, but we've, kind of been, we've come through 13 weeks, and a lot of us, I think, think, okay, well, I'm going to get through this part where I'm going to just kind of take in all of the stuff what it, that, you know, for me, what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ or what it means to be like Christ. But I'm going to stop right here. 13 out of 14 steps. I'm going to stop right here on step 13, and I'm not going to really step into this area of making disciples. And we're going to get into the why in just a second why I think we stopped there. And to be honest, this is where we kind of screw the whole thing up. This is where, where we, where we kind of stop the whole process, not just for those who have yet to be discipled and become like Christ, but for ourselves. This is where we stop growing. This is where we get hung up when we stop teaching, when we don't take this next step to to teach someone else what it means to obey and to follow Jesus Christ. We stop growing in the process. Now, we've talked about this uh, before, but I want to remind us of some of the statistics. There was a study that was done that, that talks about how people learn. And when it comes to learning or remembering, specifically remembering what you learn, we remember as people, generally speaking, now there are exceptions to this, but generally speaking, we remember 10% of what we read. So if you read something this morning, you might remember 10% of what you read. You remember 20% of what you hear, which is really encouraging to me as someone who does a lot of time speaking while other people listen. You're going to remember 20% at best, of what you hear this morning. We remember 30% of what we see. We remember 50% of what we see and hear. So maybe the fact that you are here and you're seeing me and you're listening to me means that you will remember 70% or 50% of what happens this morning. 
we remember, this is where it really gets interesting, we remember 70% of what we discuss with others, 70% of what we discuss or talk about with others, we remember. 80% of what we personally experience and 95%, you want to be able to remember 95% of something, you teach it to someone else. So if you really want to become like Christ, if you really want to learn all the ins and outs of being like Christ, one of the primary ways to do that, in fact, probably the primary way to do that, is to teach someone else how to become like Christ. I become like Christ when I teach someone else to become like Christ. And I think one of the reasons maybe many of us stop becoming like Christ is we stop before we go through the process that will really solidify deep in us what it means to be like Christ. You can, you can take in a whole lot of information, but until you've started to teach someone else that information and train someone else how to live out that idea, you stop short. According to a study done at Washington University in St. Louis, if you approach everything you learn from the vantage point of needing to teach it to someone, you can greatly speed up your own learning and remembering. And we talked about that a while ago. If you just, on a Sunday morning, approached our Sunday morning service from the vantage point of needing to teach this to someone else in the week ahead, and then you found the opportunity to teach it, even just thinking that you're going to teach this to someone else this week helps you learn it at a deeper level. This expectation changes your mindset so that you engage in more effective approaches to learning than those who simply learn to pass a test. There are some articles that I have links to if you'd like more information on that uh, study. But we don't really learn something until we teach it. Now, we've heavily emphasized this teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. Very familiar teaching. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. Verse 26. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The sand, the rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. And this is a great teaching. We've emphasized it a lot, and it's a really good illustration, a really good metaphor that's been used probably millions of times since Jesus taught it. Hearing Jesus' words and putting them into practice. But do we stop short of putting all of Jesus' words into practice? For instance, his words, his commands, his words of his which were to make disciples, do we put that into practice? Maybe that's why our house isn't yet built on a solid foundation. Because it's not enough to just hear Jesus' words, we actually have to do them. We have to put into practice what he taught, and we have to actually become the kind of people who want to put into practice what Jesus said we should do. And that's a process that takes time for us to transform. We can transform ex 
external actions, but the internal motivations take time to change. But this in Matthew chapter 7 is Jesus' closing illustration to the famous Sermon on the Mount, which is you know, his, his, essentially his mantra for his mission here. This was, the, this was the core teaching that he taught on while he was here on earth. But at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount is another important uh, teaching that we should really pay attention to. Matthew chapter 5, verse 19. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And there's a lot right now that we've, we've kind of talked about, and there's a lot of, you know, uh, writing out of what Jesus taught because it's a hard teaching. And, and when it's a hard teaching, instead of teaching, we just kind of like to skip over it. But Jesus said, anyone who sets aside the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same thing, in other words, if you're leading others away from Christ's commands, you're going to be called least in the kingdom. But whoever practices them, lives them out in your own life, and teaches them to others will be called great in the kingdom. It's because it's not just the practice that's important, but it's teaching them to others that's important. Now, I've got some lies that I want to cover as quickly as possible that I think keep us from making disciples. Instead of me doing my biggest sales pitch to make disciples, make disciples, we should all be making disciples. I want to deal with some of the lies, I think, that keep us from making disciples. And here is the first lie. Lie number one, the perfection myth. I can't disciple anyone until I'm a perfect disciple. I can't disciple anyone until I have become perfect as a follower of Jesus Christ. I don't know enough yet, and I'm not mature enough yet, so I can't possibly disciple someone else. I'll do it when I feel like I'm ready, but I'm not going to do it until I feel like I'm ready. Or we also, in this vein, will say, I can't disciple someone because I've never been discipled, so I don't really know what it means to disciple someone. So I can't disciple. This is the lie because I'm not yet a perfect disciple. The truth is, you will probably never arrive at perfection. Probably. We'll just leave the possibility out there. But you probably won't arrive at perfection. The truth is, perfection is not a requirement for teaching someone else what you know. You don't have to be perfect to share with someone what you know. In fact, humility goes a long way in discipleship. It is even preferable to studying under or becoming like a know-it-all. The person you're teaching will actually be in a better posture to learn if you're also in a learning posture. Another truth along this is that you will never feel qualified to make disciples. 
I am a pastor. I've been a pastor for a long time. I have a degree in Bible and theology. I have spent some time discipling people. And yet, as I think about discipling some more guys in our church, I still don't feel qualified to make disciples. And so if you're waiting until you feel perfect or till you've arrived at perfection, you're never going to make disciples. Let me ask really quickly if someone's brave enough to say, how has the perfection myth kept you from making disciples? All right, lie number two. Here's another lie. The easy myth. We think that when something doesn't come naturally or easily, that must not be our thing. If I was supposed to make disciples, it would come easily or naturally to me. But since it doesn't come naturally, well, then that must be someone else's job, not my job, because I do what comes easily or naturally. But the truth is, we learn best when things don't come naturally. This is actually true and proven now by science. We learn best when things don't come naturally. Because struggle, as we're going to talk about in a couple weeks, struggle is actually a key component to change. And when we don't have to struggle along the journey, we are less likely to change. But when we have to struggle, when we have to go through challenges and overcome roadblocks to change, we actually have a better chance at changing. The truth is, it'll never be easy, no matter what, because it always involves people. And it's never easy to have real relationships with people. But this science, we're actually supposed to embrace difficulty. When learning something comes easy, we don't learn as thoroughly as we do when it's difficult. And I have a couple of articles I can point you to if you'd like more information on that. How has the easy myth kept you from making disciples? Yeah, so I, I would, I agree with you. I think you're kind of in the practicing your faith category as opposed to discipling someone else category. But yeah, um, we, we, also, we don't practice our faith because it doesn't necessarily come naturally or easily. So we don't step out into that realm because praying with somebody in a public place doesn't come easily or naturally. <laughs> Oh, shh. Stop. That's coming in a minute. Anyone else? How has the easy myth kept you from making disciples? This is a safe place, by the way. This is not going to be used against you in a court of law. This is judgment-free, condemnation-free zone. We're just all trying to help one another become better. Yeah, and I think, I think that's true. I think, I think maybe a more correct way of putting that is it's instantly enjoyable. We, we can instantly enjoy the easy things. But the things that are difficult often become some of the most enjoyable things, I think, in our lives. But they just take a lot longer to experience the, the joy of them. Lie number three. Did someone else? Was some, were you, okay. Just clearing your throat. All right. Do that again and you have to talk. (laughs) Lie number three is the time myth. The time myth. I just don't have the time. Everything was nice and theoretical up until now. But now we're going to get real. 
I just don't have the time to disciple anyone. The truth is, we make time for what we think is important. And when we think something is important, we're willing to sacrifice other things in our lives because we will make time for the things that we think are important. It's not that we don't have the time to make disciples, we just don't think it's that much of a priority. In fact, there are many unimportant things in our lives that we have overemphasized and spend a lot of time on that are not nearly as important as making disciples would be. So we think we don't have the time. The truth is we don't want to make the time. Another truth is that you will never have the time. And the, more, the, the better you become at making disciples, the less you will have time to make disciples. You will never have the time to make disciples. You will always have to make the time. How has the time myth kept you from making disciples? Anyone have a thought there? We'll get to that one in a minute, too. Line number four, the teacher myth. I am not a teacher. How can I teach someone else? We elevate teachers. Teachers play an important role. There is a specific gift of teaching in Scripture. But Jesus never limited disciple-making to those who had the gift of teaching. If you can point that out to me, I would love to know that it's there. But I cannot think or find an example where Jesus limited disciple-making to those who had the gift of teaching. Yeah, the, so the myth is, I'm not a teacher. The truth is, everyone is a teacher. Have you ever taught anyone anything? Yeah? Have you ever shown anyone how to do something? Have you ever explained how something works? Have you ever told someone why you do this thing that way? Right? So you, we may not be teachers. You may not have the gift of teaching. And, you know, there are probably others in this room who could get up and teach like I teach. And I know they do. And, but not everyone has this gift. But all of us can teach others how to do things. And that's where it gets specific because Jesus wasn't so much focusing on teaching theology and doctrine and all of those things. He was focused on teaching people how to live. And we can teach people how to live when we know how to live. So how has the teacher myth kept you from making disciples? There are a lot of things I don't know. Did you know that? And the more that I learn, the less I feel like I know. And there are a lot of times when people ask me questions and I don't know the answers. I have to go look them up. All right, let me kind of keep cruising along here so we don't run out of time. Line number five, the opportunity myth. I don't have anyone to disciple. No one would want to be my disciple. The truth is, a lot of people are hungry to be discipled. Truth number two, for most of us, there are people living under our roof that we can and should be discipling. And if they're not under your roof, they're under someone's roof that you know. Andy Stanley says that your greatest accomplishment in life may not be something you do, but someone you raise. 
And so like Kami was talking about, is we have an incredible responsibility as parents to disciple our children. Truth number three. Jesus didn't wait for people to ask him. He asked people to follow. Lie number six. I'm going to get a little bit soapboxy on this one, I warn you. The me first myth, and probably all of them could fit into this in some way. I just need to focus on my own walk with God first. I need to get me right first. Our self-first agenda, I think, is destroying the church in America. Luke chapter 9, 23 says, we've talked about this many times, then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Then he said to the crowd, the NLT puts it this way, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily and follow me. The myth is I need to focus on my own walk with God first. We've made following Jesus all about me, all about ourselves. We have a wants-based contract with God and the church. If I come to church to get what I want, if you stop giving me what I want, I'm going to stop coming to church. I'm going to pray and ask God for what I want. If God doesn't give me what I want, I'm going to stop following or praying to God. If I'm in a community with others, I'm in that community because I have needs that need to be met. And if my needs stop being met, I'm going to stop being in community with those people because my needs aren't being met. This is the me first myth. And we might ask the question, shouldn't I focus on my own walk with God? And my answer to that is, absolutely, we should spend time with God. We should focus walking with God. In fact, the first 90 days of this series and the entire 13 weeks leading up until now have been that we should focus on our walk with God. That's what we do all day, every day. We should be with God all day, every day. That is the desire of Christ, to walk with God, walk humbly with God all day, every day. You are never not with you. You are with you all day long. Wherever you go, there you are. So you have this opportunity to work on you and your walk with God all day. So yes, we should be focusing on our own walk with God. And yes, at the same time, if we want to grow in our walk with God, we should also start teaching others what we have learned about walking with God. And the truth is, I become more like Christ when I help others become more like Christ. So you could even twist this if you want. If you want to be me first, if you really want to grow in your walk with Christ, if you want to really experience all the fullness of what it means to be a Christian and a Christ follower, then go teach someone else how to be a Christ follower. And that can be your best me first way to do it. Be hard to do that though without changing in the in the meantime. But let me ask a question. If you feel like this, the me first, when will you have ever received enough so that you're finally able to start discipling someone else? 
We think that, you know, I need, to, I need to work on me and need to work on me and need to focus on myself first. Well, when do we ever get to that point where we've finally gotten enough that we can start helping someone else? And then another question that I think we haven't thought about is what aren't we receiving in our walk with God because we're not discipling someone else in their walk with God? What's missing in my walk with God because I'm not helping someone else walk with God? So I think this me first myth has actually kept us from really even knowing what it means to walk with God because we've got to work on ourselves first, and that's what society would teach us. But Jesus thinks a little bit differently than our culture. This week we're going to, uh, we're going to cover a lot of material on, on the how. We're going to cover a lot of material on, on how we make disciples. That's what the devotionals are going to be focused on this week. And no, we won't cover all of it when it comes to making disciples. But here's one really simple practical way. So if you don't listen to the devotionals, here's something that you can do. And I think just talking about what you're learning with someone else. So maybe you want to get together with someone and you just talk about the sermon. You talk about what you learned in the sermon on Sunday and you just talk about what you learned and, and you share it. And there's a lot of power in sharing what you're learning because you're speaking the truth. And when you're speaking the truth and when you're speaking God's truth, it becomes a tremendously powerful life-shaping tool. So what if you just got together? What if we just got together with a couple of people once a week and we just talked about what we're learning? And as we talk, we start to help shape one another's walk with God. This is speaking the life of God's truth into existence in one another's lives. Speaking the life of God's truth into existence in one another's lives. Not gossiping, not using this time that we get together to talk about other people or all the problems or negative problems and complaining about everything that's not right in my life and everything that's wrong in the world. That's not what we're getting together to do. Getting together to speak the life of God's truth into existence in each other's life. That's at least in part, I think, what Jesus had in mind in Matthew chapter 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. As you go, make apprentices of Jesus, giving them their new identity as a Christ follower, teaching them to live out everything Jesus has taught us in the presence of Jesus. So if you get together with one other person, another Christ follower, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. So you're gathered together and you're in the presence of the Holy Spirit and Jesus is with you right there in that moment and you are talking about as you're going through life what it means to follow Jesus. I think that is at least the beginning foundational part of what it means to live out the Great Commission. How are you obeying Jesus today? What have you learned about obeying Jesus, following Jesus, becoming more like Jesus this week? And think about what if, if we just talked about that every week, if we became the kind of people where we just talked about what God is teaching us every week and how we're starting to live out what God has been teaching us. How would that change us if we just spent some time every week talking with someone else about what God is teaching us and growing along the way? 
Now, I know this is, this is a difficult concept, and it feels like this big, high commitment, big ask kind of a thing that I'm saying. But if you're feeling some resistance to it, I want to address that really quick as we draw to a close. If you're feeling a little bit of resistance, first I want you to know something. My intent as your pastor is not to get you to sign on to my agenda. I hope you know this by now, but if you don't know me that well, you may not know this yet, but I've said before, my, my entire aim as your pastor is help you become less like Adam and more like Christ. So, so my, in, my intent is not for you to do what I want you to do in your life. My intent is so that you experience God's absolute best in your life. So when I ask you to do something that feels like it's absurd and over your head, I'm not doing it because I want to have a number that I can check off, right? I'm doing it because I want God's best for everyone in our church. I think these things will help you the most. And you should also know that other than the joy of seeing you become more like Christ, there's not much for me to gain from helping you become like Christ. I don't get bonuses for every person who starts reading their Bible. Like, there's no, there's no compensation for how many times you pray, and I get rewards and journaling, and when, like, getting people to disciple others is like the, the pinnacle of it, and I just get, like, bonus, 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 bonus for doing that. There's, there's nothing in it for me other than helping you become more like Christ. So that is my intent. My intent is not to try to force you to do something you don't want to do just because I think it's something you're supposed to do. I want you to experience all of God's goodness in your life. Becoming like Christ also means unbecoming who we are. I think this is where we start to resist a little bit too. Becoming like Christ means unbecoming who we are. And there might be no part of us that wants to do this. You might be sitting here thinking this morning, there is nothing in me that wants to disciple somebody. Not at all, not in the least. And I want to say, it's okay to feel that way. It's okay to feel like I don't want to do this. This is not something that I want to do, especially if you've never done it, to have that feeling of this is just, I just don't want to do it. It's okay to feel that way, but I would also say it's not okay to let that keep you from stepping out in faith and trying. Feel that way and, and, and try to get to the bottom of what it is that's making you feel that way, but don't let that keep you from trying, because chances are when you start it, you won't want to stop it. I think the reason that we resist or push back often becomes, comes because of fear, we're afraid of what's going to happen, we've talked about. We're afraid of what we might experience. We're afraid of looking stupid. We're afraid that we're not going to know this or that. We're afraid it's going to turn out bad or that we're going to end up in a conflict or whatever we're afraid of. But we have this fear that exists in our life because of limiting beliefs that we've embraced. Everything we do, and we've talked about this at length at the beginning of this series, everything we do in our lives is based on the story we're believing at this moment. 
So we're all living out a storyline. We're all living according to a narrative. And the narrative that we have embraced is the story of our lives. And so this narrative is my story right now at this moment. But that does not mean that this narrative that we've embraced, the story that we are clinging to, is actually a true story. Some of us, I know from conversations I've had even this week, have limiting beliefs that are deeply wired into our minds and woven into every fabric of our being. And God's truth comes in and contradicts those limiting beliefs. This is why we resist and push back. God's truth will come in and it will contradict those limiting beliefs. And even though these beliefs may be lies, they are my truth at this moment. This is my truth that I've embraced. It's not the truth, so don't hear me incorrectly, but this is my truth that I'm living out at this moment because I've embraced it. And so when God then comes in with his truth and his truth contradicts my truth, we resist. We push back. It's easy to get offended when we've embraced a story. So let me say, when you feel conflicted, instead of getting angry or upset, ask why you're feeling this way. Why am I, why am I resisting discipling others? Why am I resisting when, when David asks me to consider discipling someone else or meeting together with someone else and talking about what God is doing and what God is teaching me in my life? Why do I resist that? And then start to dig down and get at the root of what is causing you to think that way because that is a limiting belief. And when we start to push up against those limiting beliefs with God's truth, we can either cling to the limiting belief or we can let God set us free and remove the limits from our life. If this resistance isn't of God, then I would ask God to help you uproot this limiting belief from your life and replace it with his truth. This is a, a global principle, by the way. Anything in your life where God comes to you with his truth and contradicts your truth with his truth, ask him to help you uproot this limiting belief from your life and replace it with his truth. If you're not sure about it, if you're not sure about this thing, whether it's a God thing or not a God thing, then talk to somebody. Get the counsel of someone who's a little further ahead than you. You can talk to me or my wife. You can talk to one of the elders or their wives. You can talk to the staff. You can talk to some people in the church, and we will do our best to help you get to the root of this limiting belief so that it doesn't lim limit you anymore. But whatever you do, don't let offense keep you from becoming more like Christ. Don't let yourself get offended to the point where you stop becoming like Christ, because that isn't the goal in any of it. The goal is to become like Christ, and whatever it takes to become like Christ is what I want to do, and it's what I want for us. One last thought, and this is where we'll close. Our next series we're going to start up in a, a few weeks is going to be on uh, Hebrews. We're going to be going through the book of Hebrews for 13 weeks. We'll finish to go all the way through the book of Hebrews together. And Hebrews, as you know, has a big chapter in it, a big theme of faith. I think faith is something that 
I need more of in my life, and I'm just asking God to grow me in my faith so that I can have bigger faith and, and not be limited in my faith. But I had this thought that maybe, could it possibly be that faith is when we start to step out beyond the limits of our beliefs? That our beliefs kind of take us up to a certain point and, and they've gotten us to where we are, but now when we're going to step out in faith, we're kind of stepping out into this unknown because our beliefs stop here. And if I really want to grow in Christ, I'm going to have to step out in faith and hope that there's something there to catch me. And like Indiana Jones in the movie, you know, he, does, he can't see the pathway, but then he kicks something out and he can see that there's something there and he can finally take that step of faith. What if, what if faith is about taking that step, right, just one step, one baby step beyond our limiting beliefs and where we're stuck and saying, I want to just go a little bit beyond. Even though I can't see the path, even though I might have reached the limit of my understanding, I want to take one more step. And I don't know where my foot's going to land. I don't know, I don't know what's going to happen whenever my foot comes down. I don't even know if my foot is going to come down and I might lose everything in the process. But I, I'm kind of stuck and I've hit this wall and I'm up against this same wall that I hit every single time in my life when I'm trying to grow and when I'm trying to change. And, and this is the wall of my limiting beliefs. And what God wants us to do is just take one little step of faith. And what if that one little step of faith is all that you need to crush that wall, right? I mean, you crush the power that that wall has in your life by just taking that one step of faith. Right now, it's brick after brick after brick after brick of all of these different ways and instances this lie has been built into and incorporated into our lives, and we've surrounded ourselves with this limiting belief, this boundary of limits. And, and what God wants us to do is just take a step of faith into the unknown, and you may not understand it, but once you take that step of faith, all the wall starts to crumble. And by just saying, okay, I don't think I have what it takes. I don't think I have what it takes to follow Christ. I don't think I have what it takes to become like Christ. I cannot begin to imagine what my life would look like if it was actually a Christ-like life. And, and I certainly don't think I have what it takes to disciple somebody and lead them into this unknown for themselves, let alone for my own life. How do I lead someone else into following Christ for their life? I don't have any idea what it's going to look like. But what if all God is asking you is not to know everything, not to have all of the answers, not to have everything put in place like you think it needs to be before you can start? What he's saying is just step beyond the wall. And see what I can do. And we walk by faith and not by sight, but when we have these limiting beliefs, these, this wall that's surrounding everything about our life, that's what we can do. That's my power my understanding, my expertise, my knowledge, my wisdom, my everything. But God wants us to walk in his power, in his strength, in his might, 
and his wisdom and his knowledge and his purpose and his understanding and his love and his hope and and everything that he has designed us for is basically built on the foundation of destroying everything we built in our lives. If anyone would come after me, he has to say no to his own way and embrace mine. Let's stand together. your heads bowed and eyes closed. I know every single one of us in this room has some kind of limiting belief that's keeping us from taking another step in our walk with Christ. For many of us, it might just be this last step of discipling someone else. For others, it might be going all the way back to the beginning and embracing the character of Christ. And we've never really embraced the character of Christ, let him change the motives of our heart. And so the wall that we keep banging our head up against is is the wall of our own personal motives and our own agenda. Or maybe the limiting belief in your life is just the habits, the habits that you embrace and that you don't want to let go. And there's things that you like in your life that you just aren't ready to give up. And even though you know that it's going to be required of you to give those things up, you like them and enjoy them, and you're just not ready to say no to those things. Wherever that wall is in your life, whatever the limiting belief is in your life, whatever it is that we've surrounded ourselves with of our own doing, of our own understanding, and of our own power, as God brings that to mind, can you see yourself walking through that wall? Can you see yourself just taking one step beyond that limit? Can you see God giving you the power? Can you see God giving you the courage? Can you see God giving you the faith to step out in faith and walk by the understanding of that he is God and you are not and you don't have all the answers, but I'm going to walk by faith and not by sight. I cannot see where my foot is going to land, but I know God wants me to step beyond it and into his great unknown so that I can experience all that he has for me. So I'm going to take this step of faith. Can you see whatever has got you stuck, whatever has limited you up until now, can you see yourself stepping beyond that? Just one baby step past that wall. Heavenly Father, I ask right now in this moment by the power of the Holy Spirit who is present as we are gathered together in the presence of the Holy Spirit that wants to make us more into the image of Christ, that has the desire for us to leave behind all of our old ways of life and embrace the newness of life that waits for us in Christ. I ask, fathers, that spirit is active and moving in our hearts right now in this moment as we are are gathered together so that we can not only worship you, but we can better resemble you. I pray, Father, that your spirit would move deep within our hearts and that you would work deeply to uproot some of these things that have kept us 
from knowing you and experiencing you and walking with you and sharing you and training others to follow you and all of those things that you want us to do. Father, I pray that you would dig deep right now in this moment. Dig to the deepest parts of who we are. Dig way, way, way down and get this thing that's hung us up time and time again. And Father, we give you permission. We give you control. We turn our hearts over to you and just say, start pulling it out. Pull it out. Get it out of there. We don't want it anymore and just replace it. Now I pray, Father, with your truth, with the presence of God and the spirit of truth, deepen the deepest recesses of who we are. Replace what was taken with so much better of what is given in the power of the spirit and what you have for us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.